You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. On Wednesday morning, March 19, 1952, Milton Hayter and George Sorensen were feeling understandably nervous. Because who wouldn't be nervous speaking before a Senate subcommittee? Nothing in their lives had prepared them for such a thing. Hayter had spent most of his life as a job setter for General Motors. Sorensen had owned a steel manufacturing business. Neither of them had even graduated from high school, so of course they were nervous. As Senator Blair Moody, chair of the Senate Subcommittee on Mobilization and Procurement of the Select Committee, grilled them on machine tools and gardening classes. It wasn't going well. The transcript reads like an Abbott and Costello routine, but Hayter and Sorensen weren't explaining the lineup of their baseball team, They were defending themselves on charges somewhere between fraud and war profiteering. So, yeah, they were a little freaked out. It only got worse as it went on. The honorable senator from Minnesota was combative and appeared to have the two dead to rights. But the worst thing of all for the two men at the interview table was that there were meant to be three men at the interview table. And that third was conspicuously absent. Twenty minutes into the hearing, the doors burst open and a tall, gaunt, elderly man strode in unapologetically. Actually, unapologetically doesn't begin to describe it. The silver-goateed figure practically stomped his way over to the table, grumbling and sputtering with put-upon frustration. Senator Moody hinted that it might be a good time to make an apology for his tardiness. The man responded by complaining about his chair. Whatever else this dude was, and he was a whole lot of things, nervous was not one of them. And Hayter and Sorensen audibly relaxed as well. Just a minute ago, they were screwed, royally and truly boned. A mechanic and a contractor against the might of the U.S. Senate, with only a quiver of incriminating documents with which to bumblingly defend themselves. But now they had their savior and hero. The one man in all of human history, equipped to defend and get their hostile interlocutor to agree with them. And two hours later, astonishingly, he had succeeded. In a sense. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. 
A little while back, I was invited by Zach Davis, host of the fantastic Ministry of Ideas podcast, which you should be listening to, to give a presentation at Sound Education, a convention of educational podcasters held at Harvard and Boston University. This was an intimidating prospect. I'm used to performing at bars and theaters, where the success of my material is directly dependent on how many drinks have previously been consumed. And then, suddenly I'm cast into Boston, home of some of the world's greatest universities, among some of the smartest, most innovative, and successful voices in the world of podcasting. What knowledge could I possibly hope to add to such an auspicious place and event? Nothing. Nothing at all. I'm not a historian, I'm not an educator, I'm not even an audio engineer. I'm just a guy who tells stories about bad ideas and mistakes in his closet. I don't add knowledge to anything. Usually, I subtract it. And so, that's what I did. Instead of the best ways to educate and enlighten, I decided to talk about the poorest way to educate and enlighten, and about the worst university in the world. It's a story that, in many ways, ends at that Senate subcommittee hearing on March 19, 1952. And it begins with that indignant septuagenarian on the most momentous day since the beginning of mankind. This week's episode, Suck and Blow. The man at the center of the worst university in the world is its namesake, Alfred Lawson, and the most momentous day in human history, according to his biographer, Cy Ponce, is March 24th, 1869, the date of Lawson's birth. And before we go any further, let me make clear that Alfred Lawson's biographer, Cy Q. Ponce, was absolutely, positively the pen name of Alfred Lawson himself. Ponce, read Lawson, also warns that to try to write a sketch of the life and works of Alfred W. Lawson in a few pages is like trying to restrict space itself. It cannot be done. Nevertheless, I'll give it a go. Alfred Lawson was born in London, but his parents soon after moved the family to Canada and finally Detroit. As a young boy, he spent his time blowing on dust motes, which is contrary to all apparent reason, a very important hobby to remember, blowing on dust motes. Later on, he sold newspapers, helped in his father's rug-weaving business, and worked as a bootblack before he finally ran away from home to ride the rails as a hobo. Somehow from there, he got work in the young sport of baseball, back when it was still two words. He started as a pitcher in 1889, playing for tiny Midwestern farm teams before landing a major league contract right here with the Boston Bean Eaters. He only made it one year in the majors. He played three games and lost three games, too. He lost the last 14-1 to with three errors. Dissatisfied with the lack of appreciation for his baseball brilliance, he put together a team of his own called Al Lawson's American All-Stars which he barnstormed south from New York to Havana. Al Lawson's American All-Stars were an unbeatable force, at least on the one occasion they managed to win a game. Otherwise, they were eminently and reliably beatable. When they returned to Tampa from Havana, the team went their separate ways, 
leaving Lawson to defend them from charges of match-fixing and pervasive public drunkenness on the field. For the next eight years or so, Lawson skipped around the country, coaching and managing teams and leagues, most of which he created and most of which failed. His last and most infamous baseball venture was the Union Professional League, a list of East Coast clubs held together by Lawson's refusal to pay the players until the year was out. The Union League, otherwise known as the Onion League because it was cheap and smelled bad, got two months into its season before it folded. According to Lawson, the blame for the failure rested on old Jupiter Pluvius, who cursed the league to rainouts. That was all right, though. Because Alfred Lawson believed that baseball was a deleterious lifestyle filled with drinking, smoking, and meat-eating. In 1904, he'd published a utopian sci-fi novel called Born Again, which is considered the greatest novel ever written by the hard-to-please Psy-Q Ponce. In truth, Born Again is barely legible, with a meandering, centuries-spanning plot that includes characters with evil doubles, reincarnated doubles, and reincarnated evil doubles. But Born Again does give us some insights into the crisis of conscience its author was facing in the early days of the 20th century. He believed he was meant for better things, something beyond baseball, something befitting his birth, which, as you'll recall, was the most momentous event in human history, after all. In 1908, after the Union League fell apart, Lawson found a new pursuit that, at least temporarily, might contain his ambitions flight. Here is where I have to eat a little crow for making fun of the guy. Because Alfred Lawson's avionics career is... uh, very impressive. Not that that stopped him from padding out his resume anyway. Lawson made the dubious claim of having invented the aircraft carrier, for which there is zero evidence, and the even dubiouser claim of having coined the term aircraft, for which there is plenty of contradicting evidence. Nevertheless, Lawson's contributions to early aviation are serious. He did found and publish the first two magazines about heavier-than-air flight. He became a skilled pilot and the world's first air commuter, regularly making the flight from his home in New Jersey to downtown Manhattan. Then, he moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin, to build the Lawson Military Tractor, an Air Force training plane for World War I pilots. It was when the war ended in 1919 that Lawson really made his mark, with the Lawson L-1 and L-2 biplanes. At completion, each was the largest non-military plane ever built, and served a totally new purpose, as a commercial airliner, a term which Lawson actually did coin. Now, technically there was a French company that offered commercial flights before Lawson did, but their plane was a rejiggered military dealie that only held two passengers, whereas the L2 could accommodate 18. Lawson piloted it himself on a route from Milwaukee to New York City and back again, with stops in Chicago, Toledo, Cleveland, Buffalo, Syracuse, Washington, and Dayton, Ohio. The L-2 was a rocking success and proved that pedestrian air travel was a viable business. After the initial buzz, Lawson accumulated a million dollars in investments to build the L-4, or Midnight Liner, which was designed for long-distance direct flights between Chicago and New York. 
The plan was to build a fleet of midnight liners that could form a trans-American airline, which struck most people as an impossible pipe dream. Unfortunately, Lawson's money fell off when recession hit in 1920, and he was only able to complete a single L4. But that was a temporary hiccup. As soon as the midnight liner's maiden voyage was behind it, people would wake up to the possibilities, and Alfred Lawson's dream would be made manifest. The midnight liner took off from Hamilton Field in Long Island on May 8, 1920. It rolled down the 300-foot runway until its nose tilted and the giant wheels left the earth. Then, it hit an elm tree. Tumbled back to the ground and smashed through a couple dozen yards of topsoil and brush. Hamilton Field's runway wasn't long enough to launch the L-4, but Lawson had been nearly out of money and it was the nearest airfield he could afford. The pilot escaped unharmed, but the Midnight Liner was totaled, Lawson Airplane Company was bankrupt, and Alfred Lawson called the business quits. It's 1921, and Alfred William Lawson has already lived at least three lives, as a rail rider, a pitcher and manager in the early days of baseball, and as a trailblazer in human flight. But we're still 33 years and two lives away from the end of the story. For the next decade, Alfred Lawson took up work as a prolific author, writing dozens of books on everything. Literally everything, according to Lawson and, of course, Cy Q. Ponce. But let's skip ahead a decade, because throughout the 20s, his books appear to have gone woefully and properly unappreciated. It would take a... Uh, what are we on? A fourth? Fifth? It would take another career to eventually bring Lawson's authorial genius to public attention. With the Great Depression of 1929, a whole lot of people were suddenly very angry and skeptical about big banks and big government, a sentiment that Alfred W. Lawson had held since investors had abandoned his airline. That put him in the lucky position to lead a populist campaign for economic reform, which would attract tens of thousands of followers. Lawson's pitch was simple, attractive, and well, not without merit, frankly. He argued that the rich were hosing everybody else and that they kept the common people down by encouraging meaningless feuds against anything other than what might interrupt their wealth and power. So far, so good, Lawson, my man. He called for unity among all Americans to defeat the ruling class. Solidarity, Al. How would we wield our singular energy? Well, okay. So that's where things get a little dicey. Lawson called for the abolishment of the gold standard, which was a good idea. He demanded the forgiveness of all debts, like all of them. He demanded the breaking up of big banks. Yes, definitely, let's do. But actually, why stop there? Lawson said we should get rid of all banks, everywhere. All systems of debt, savings, and lending. Which seems a touch extreme. I've got some questions, but I'm still listening. What else you got, Al? How about the end of money? Like, all money. In its place, Lawson argued that the government should instead print direct credits. Direct credits would be like money, but... Uh, honestly, they'd be money, I think. 
The government would give them out in interest-free loans to whoever needed them, which sounds like a one-way ticket to superinflationville, but thankfully, Lawson assures us they wouldn't be subject to inflation at all. Because... I don't know. I don't know. I can't make hide nor hair out of direct credits, but the idea had a brief, explosive popularity in the 30s, with tens of thousands of advocates marching in parades and filling bandstands to listen to the soaring future vision of a new economic system delivered by the one and only Alfred W. Lawson. If Lawson heard me say I didn't comprehend the fine points of direct credits, he wouldn't be surprised. Lots of people had trouble apprehending his bold plan, because so many people were indoctrinated into a false understanding of economics. Economics, he knew, was just an outcropping of a larger, overriding set of principles and laws that governed the whole of the universe, and without knowledge of those things, there was no way one could expect to grasp direct credits. That was why each book on the subject included a primer on the true science of life and everything, which our buddy Al had spent the 20s writing about with little impact. The science of Lawsonomy. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by BetterHelp. If you could use some extra support... BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. With BetterHelp, you can connect with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment on your own time and at your own pace via secure video, phone, chat, or text sessions with your own therapist. BetterHelp has licensed professional counselors who specialize in depression, LGBT matters, trauma, relationships, anxiety, sleeplessness, and more. Anything you share with them is confidential, and if at any time you're not satisfied with your counselor, you can request a new one. BetterHelp's secure, convenient, professional counseling is available as soon as 24 hours after signing up and worldwide. Best of all, it's affordable, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. And on top of that, constant listeners get 10% off their first month with discount code THECONSTANT. That's one word, the constant. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash the constant. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash the constant. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.
Nearly everything you've ever been taught about physics, chemistry, biology, astronomy, or mathematics is wrong. This was something that Lawson, in his great and unmatched wisdom, recognized from the time he was a small boy, living in Detroit and playing with his dust motes. Lil Lawson would, with his breath, blow dust away from him and, with his inhalation, suck it back. Like Isaac Newton beneath the apple tree, who was wrong, by the way, this simple empirical observation presented a great epiphany for Alfred Lawson. Traditional Newtonian physics saw the universe in terms of energies and forces, but Lawson's dust blowing put the lie to that myth. There is no such thing as energy, no such thing as force, only suck and blow. All things, simple and complex, physical and ethereal, contain one fundamentally important value, an inherent density that determines what is sucked towards them and to what they themselves are sucked. The Earth, for instance, has a greater density than Isaac Newton's apple, and thus the latter is pulled to the former. Gravity is, in reality, merely suction. But so is everything. Like, literally everything. What allows for sight? The density of the eyes, which suck light into them. Why must animals eat? To temporarily sate the suctive demand deep within the furnaces of their souls. What is sex but the intermingling of the pressured penis and the sucking vagina? And what is attraction, which can only be strictly heterosexual, of course, but the broader ringing of that same genital vortex? Death is merely what happens when the body's swirl of suction and pressure becomes inert, a situation which can be forestalled or even prevented entirely by working towards a constant, even, balanced swirl, which Lawson calls equa-everpoise. With the right foods, impulses, understanding, and exercises, he believed he had discovered how to live to be 200 years old. Suck and blow, or as Lawson formally called it, the principle of penetrability, was the most critical and fundamental insight of the universe. Or, as Psy Coupons, wink, once put it, in comparison to Lawson's law of penetrability, Newton's law of gravitation is but a primer, and the lessons of Copernicus and Galileo are but infinitesimal grains of knowledge. But it wasn't the only way that Lawson revolutionized our understanding of the natural world. Nearly as important as penetrability was the law of zigzag and swirl, which is the technical term. Zigzag and swirl addressed one of Lawson's deepest bugaboos. For some reason that I, I cannot hope to guess, he was driven to fits of pique over the existence of straight lines and circles. Or I should say, the fallacies of straight lines and circles. Because Lawson understood that straight lines and circles were illusions, myths. When I walk forward in what your dull and deceived senses suppose to be a straight line, I am actually moving in 11 different directions at once. All movement, after all, is governed by suck and blow, and all movement is relative to the governing, suctive bodies that influence one another. 
So, while I may be moving in a straight line sucked forward, I am also moving over a curve of the Earth, which is sucking me down. The Earth, in turn, is being sucked around the Sun, which is itself being sucked through ether and less ether, don't ask, across the galaxy, which is also etc, etc, etc. When you properly account for the full movement of anything, from a corpuscle of blood to the novas of the heavens, you come to realize, if you are as brilliant as Alfred W. Lawson, which no one is, that they all share a common shape. Zigzag and Swirl Lawson claims, in the foreword of each of his more than 40 books, to be the discoverer of a litany of great fundamental truths. The cause of movement, the cause of sex, the cause of death, the inventor of the airliner, that one's true, remember, penetrability, zigzag and swirl, even consciousness, which he explains is a battle between the opposing forces of tiny mental animals called menorgs, who order the mind, and disorgs, who gum up the works. There are some 37 books left to cover, but these concepts, menorgs and disorgs, zigzag and swirl, and suck and blow, are pretty well illustrative of the grander schema of Lawsonomy. Throughout the 1920s, Lawsonomy could be safely ignored, but with the popularity of direct credits and the elusive promise that they could be better understood through the true science, Lawsonomy ballooned in popularity. Direct credits, like so many populist ideologies, fell apart once Roosevelt's New Deal and the war effort began digging the economy out. But by then, there were thousands of Lawsonomy adherents scattered as grains on the wind in every corner of America. In 1942, Lawson pooled together $100,000 from his hopeless dupes, or er, acolytes, and bought up the abandoned campus of the University of Des Moines. Within the year, he had reopened the school, but not as some regular old stupid college, which Lawson said caused the brain to bald from the inside, but as the first school in history worth a good goddamn. The University of Lawsonomy. Because Lawson believed all other education was less than worthless, there were no prerequisite diplomas or accreditations to gain admission at the University of Lawsonomy. New charges needed only to prove that they were morally upright, free from drink, smoke, and animal flesh, and that they had read the entirety of Lawson's revolutionary corpus. All 40-odd books. And I hope you liked them, because those same books would be the only materials allowed on campus. No books pamphlets, or handbills written by anyone other than Lawson. All Lawsonomy, all the time. At one point, a student was discovered with instructions on the rules of basketball. It was quickly banned and burned. The degree program at the University of Lawsonomy was for the honorific of Nalegian, which took an estimated 30 years to complete. This presented a problem, because the only person to have properly matriculated as an Elegian was Lawson, and soon after the school opened, he decided he had more important things to do than play Socrates to his student base. He was only on campus a couple days a month, usually in some vague oversight role. The ordinary day-to-day -day tasks of the university were left to the board members, professors, instructors, custodians, mechanics, laundresses, and cooks, all of whom, up to and including the president of the university, were also its students. They paid no tuition for their education and received no salary for their labors, perhaps in a microcosm of Lawson's direct credit stream. 
I couldn't tell you because I don't understand direct credits. At one point, the school said they had upwards of 2,000 students enrolled. I don't believe that, and neither should you. But at the time, the president of the university, a fourth-year student and former GM line worker named Milton Hayter, and fifth-year student George Sorensen, who may have also been the school's botany professor or maybe a mechanic, it's immensely difficult to tell. Anyway, by the time Hayter and Sorensen were sitting before the Senate subcommittee on March 19, 1952, hoping that Lawson would show up to deliver them, there were only 20 students, they estimated. 20 students who the school homed, fed, and clothed, without tuition, without grants, without fellowships. Where, oh where, did the money come from? That was the question that Senator Blair Moody wanted answered, because he had an inkling. Right at the end of World War II, the University of Lausonomy had purchased a whole bunch of machine tools from the U.S. government at a steep cost reduction. 5% or less of their total value. The program through which this was done gave schools access to military surplus on the promise that it be used to teach students and that it not be resold to the private sector. Senator Moody wanted to know what the University of Lausanne was teaching with the many industrial machine tools they had scraped off of the U.S. Army. And, for that matter, what exactly did the University of Lausanne teach at all? As a general truism, there is nothing more boring than a Senate subcommittee testimony. But the hearings over the University of Lausanne are comedy gold. Even the most softball questions, such as, what courses do you teach, lead to sprawling, serpentine, hilarious exchanges that only resolve when the involved parties give up and move on to the next. At one point, the senator gives Lawson and his disciples the chance to fully explain the breadth of Lasonomy, but their attempts to do so eventually break down to Sorensen screaming rhetorical questions into thin air. How would you ask what a baby is, what a baby does? A baby is its promise, and what it does is left to the limitless potential of the future. Can't argue with that. But here's the important question. Whatever Lasonomy is, how the hell did it use all those machine tools? The witnesses make some half-hearted attempts to explain that it is very important that the students understand everything in the universe, up to and including military-grade machine tools. But when Senator Moody says, so you just bring the students into a room full of machine tools and say, this is what machine tools look like, Hayter is forced to answer, yeah, pretty much. The records subpoenaed by the committee showed that the university had purchased somewhere between 45 and 60 tools from the government for approximately $4,000 total, and that they had already sold off roughly three quarters of the supply for a tidy profit of $165,000, which was being used to bankroll the school. In the end, Lawson's only defense was to say he didn't know he couldn't do that. The school was shut down, the campus auctioned off by the government. It reopened in a Wisconsin barn, just north of the Illinois border, between Chicago and Milwaukee. For decades, people driving between the two could see a large, flat print sign, imperatively screaming, Study Natural Law, the University of Lausanne, right up the interstate from the Mars Cheese Castle. 
But if the barn was ever anything more than a signpost, there's no record of it. Anyway, by the time it was purchased, Alfred Lawson was dead. He came up 113 years short of 200, dying two years after the Senate testimony. But it wasn't a complete loss. Lawson's rhetorical might wasn't enough to convince the government that the machines were bought or sold honestly, or that the school was a legitimate institution of higher learning, or that the science of Lawsonomy would be universally adopted by the year 2000. But he did manage to get Senator Moody to concede one very important point. At the end of the hearing, Alfred W. Lawson rose testily from his seat and bellowed out, This is the damnedest thing I've ever heard in all my life. Senator Moody, the record shows, responded, I don't know whether we're talking about the same thing, but I'm inclined to agree with you. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions, Lee Rosevear, Kevin McLeod, and Lakey Inspired. We are part of Hub & Spoke, a collective of idea-driven podcasts out of Boston, which includes iconography about the icons real and imagined that define and are defined by the places where they arise. Iconography's latest episode is a dive into the old man of the mountain, New Hampshire's most indelible symbol, which also happens to no longer exist. That's awkward. But maybe it means New Hampshire's second most famous icon will finally be given its due. So give it up for, let's say, the Belknap Mill in Laconia, which is at 193 years of age, the oldest unaltered brick knitting mill in America. Wow, they simply don't make brick knitting mills that old anymore. Before we sign off, I'd like to give you an in on another podcast. It's called Historium. It's written and hosted by Jake Barton. And, well, he, he does a better job selling it than I could do. So let me just give you over to him, but not before saying that if you like the constant and if you find yourself trying to find more content to scratch the itch I try to scratch, Historium is definitely for you. Here's Jake with why. Hey, I'm Jake Barton, host of the Historium Podcast. Did you ever fall asleep in history class? If so, you are definitely not alone. History can be boring when focusing on only dates and statistics. Historium, on the other hand, seeks out historical narratives in some of the most unlikely of places. Whether it's Julius Caesar being captured by pirates, or Australia losing a war to flightless birds, or radical religious communists taking over a city during the Reformation, or a Russian submariner who saved the world from nuclear annihilation. I bet you haven't heard these stories before. If you're a fan of this podcast, then I'm sure Historium would be right up your alley. You can find Historium wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the University of Chicago, which I am surprised to say is a far cooler campus than Harvard's. This has been The Constant. <laughs>